Well, good morning. My name is Jordan. I'm the pastor here, and I'm excited to jump into this passage with you. After, I think, nine or ten weeks, we have finished chapter one in John, and we are in chapter two, and uh, I kind of had this image of, uh, you know, when you start a roller coaster, you're all hyped to get on the ride, and maybe you get a little bit of speed right off the bat, and then you have to slow way down while they winch you up to the top of the hill, right? And it takes a while. That's kind of like chapter one. John, like there's a lot of buildup. He's got to get us up there so that we can enjoy the rest of what's coming. And so there's a lot of intentionality, a lot of depth, a lot to chapter one in, in, in John. And now we're, we're kind of dropping off the top of the hill into the narrative section. And we're going to pick up some speed. We're going to cover uh, some, some larger sections now. But really, as we enter into this first section of this roller coaster of this gospel, which is amazing, the next three chapters are really united with one central theme. And that theme is... The old is gone, and the new is here. The old is gone, and the new has come. And so we see that is going to get kicked off with this first of Jesus' signs. Now, this is a famous story. It's, it's, it's cited a lot, but I think scarcely understood as far as the meaning. Now, we like to tell it. It's a cool story. It's one of our favorite just party stories about what Jesus has done, right? But as far as mining the depths of why is this here and why is it his first, why did John include it in one of, John only includes seven miracles or signs, if you will, uh, in his gospel, and, and he's got so many more. Like John says so himself. At the end of the book, John's like, listen, um, like if I were to write everything, We'd run out of ink and books and all. Like, John's got stories for days, but he chooses to start with this one. Jesus chooses to start with this one. So there's, there's some mystery around it that I don't think it's, you know, it's kind of just cited as like, hey, Jesus is pro-alcohol. Didn't you know? He did this. And, or, or we try to change it. Well, that was just grape juice. No, well, really, neither of those are the point of the, of the, of the text. And anyway, there's, there's a much richer uh, meaning here. And so, uh, and really, we don't have to speculate about that. John actually tells us here in this passage and at the end of the book exactly why this is written in here. We see it in verse 11, why Jesus did this, why John included it. Verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did, manifested his glory. So that's why he did it, to show his glory. And here's what happened as a result. His disciples believed in him. Now, that, that if you're thinking about that, that statement, that's a little bit curious because you're like, wait, they're his disciples. Didn't they already believe in him? Right? Have you thought about that? Well, here's the deal. They're following him uh, because we, we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus wasn't the only one that had disciples. In this culture, in this context, many teachers, rabbis would have uh, uh, people that, that followed them as students that were disciples, meaning they were intent on learning the body of work and understanding that this teacher had to become holy like that teacher. So Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples, and these guys had indeed come to follow Jesus and make him their rabbi, their teacher, their leader. They were in, but there's a difference between you know, saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's a difference between saying, yeah, if, if I've got to pick a leader, if I've got to pick a religion, then yeah, Christianity is my thing, and then believing in. You see, John wrote this book, this whole gospel. He ends it with, in um, chapter 20 of this gospel of John, in, in verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why this book is written. That's why this miracle was done. That's what the result was, is that his disciples believed in him. This transformation begins to take off from, okay, this is the Messiah. Okay, this is the promised one of God. But believing that he is God, believing that this Messiah is something more than they could have ever imagined, this is when that shift begins to happen. And it's a result of this miracle. So maybe you're here, and, and much like the disciples, like you're a Christian, you would say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I'm not a, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. I, I, you know, this is, this is my, you know, my religion of choice, if you will. You, I believe in Jesus already. You, we, we get a lot of that here in Southern Illinois, of course. Yeah, yeah, I'm, of course I believe in Jesus. I know that he's the Savior. I know that I should pray to him, and he's the way that I, I get out of hell. All, all of those things, but the difference that the disciples experienced that day is what John wants for us here. 
the difference in, in just mere acknowledging intellectually or morally that Jesus is the Lord in the right way and then believing in him, being caught up in the, the glory that is him is laughably better. I mean, like, that's actually the point of this story. What Jesus brings isn't mere religion. It's hilariously better than religion. That's the point of the story. Jesus is going to take what, what is, is used for ceremonial cleansing by the Jewish people and turn them into vats to hold wine of celebration. And his big idea is that, man, what I'm bringing is not just another way. It's not just a, another attempt that God is sending a prophet to hope that this will be the guy that gets everybody on board. No, no. It is, it is hilariously and ridiculously better. That's why we sang that song earlier. We almost always give a caveat about it because we don't sing it often because we don't want it to be misunderstood. But when we say, oh, the overwhelming, reckless love of God, we're not talking about a recklessness with which he is willing to harm other people or do you know, like things that are not well thought out. We're talking about a recklessness with regards to himself because he comes bringing such a kingdom, such a richness to the, the advance of salvation for our sake that he has no regard for his own salvation. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus has come to be the bridegroom who will spill his own blood to purchase for himself a bride that can be received and, and fully received and fully enjoyed. And it is far better than anything religion or self-help or mere whatever you have been taught is the way to gain your acceptance with God. It, Jesus is saying, no, this is far better. So John says it's a sign. Jesus chooses it to, to launch into his ministry, and it's all so that we may believe. So let's lean in. Let's, let's see what is for us here in this story. We see that it starts uh, on the third day. Now, there's, there's some confusion there because we've been seeing the next day, the next day. We, if you were tracking that, we were on day four, and then the next, so if we go to the third day, you're a little bit confused, and, and, and there's, there's some speculation there. But, but really, I, I think it's probably the third day from that last fourth day, which puts us at, at the end of the week, the sixth or the seventh day. I think it's probably the third day from then. But really, the big idea is that the third day is going to become a theme of which Jesus is going to be pointing us to resurrection. It's a, it's a theme that has been in the Old Testament. It's a theme that will be developed even further into the New Testament. And so we're really just going to put a pin in that and, and see that this, this will, will continue to be developed. But the, here's the scene. We're at a wedding. And the wedding uh, is, is in Cana in Galilee. It's a small town. And, and, and Jesus' mom was there. And she seems to, to be there in some position of coordination, some position of like helping out. I do a lot of weddings and, and I'll have this conversation with the, with the bride before the rehearsal dinner uh, because I don't know if you know this, a lot of people have opinions and sometimes they want to share them when they're not welcome. And so sometimes I'll have this conversation with the, the bride and be like, okay, who's helping you? Because like, I want to know who you want to hear from. Because if you, if you remember, you know, if you've been a bride or if you've had a bride, that's like they've made 72,000 decisions about this day. And so, and then in that moment, they're trying to make it all happen in that day, and it's all, it's chaos. And so, like, who do you want to hear from? Because I'll tell everybody else to shut up, right? And that's what I do. I start a rehearsal dinner. I'm like, hey, this is the bride's day, and the groom gets to come along. The rest of you are invited to share your opinion when the bride asks you for your opinion. Otherwise, let's let us figure this out, and then we'll tell you where to go. Um, so, but a lot of times the bride will have, oh yeah, so-and-so, my aunt or my friend or whatever is kind of helping coordinate the wedding. Well, I want, to, I want that person to be identified because they're going to be responsible for some things to help keep the show running. So it seems as though Jesus' mom is not just invited, but she seems to have some part in coordinating the event and the ceremony. So Jesus' mom is there. Jesus is also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, uh, it, weddings were a huge deal in this culture. It was, it was really something that didn't happen a ton, and it would be like uh, the event of the year. Like, people would look forward to it. They would last uh, multiple days, sometimes three, four, even five or six days long. The ceremony, the party, all of this would, would just continue. And so it, it was a huge deal, and it was really common for just the whole town, the whole area to be invited. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a big celebratory deal, especially in a small town like this, almost everybody would be there, even enemies, right? Even people you weren't a big fan of uh, would still get the invite. It's a shame and honor culture, and so they're going to be brought into there. So Jesus is there. 
uh, with his disciples. Um, I don't know if it was like Jesus plus whatever. Like it was pretty early. Like Jesus didn't have his, his posse wasn't real well defined at this point. But he is there and his disciples are invited. And, and, and here is where we enter into the crisis. So verse 3 says, uh, and then the wine ran out. Now, um, I don't know how big a deal that is to you. Um, consistently, anytime my wife does something, or even like uh, Cindy here at the church, it's just like, um, I'm always just like, well, I mean, whatever people, like, I, I'm like, I don't want to spend any more money than we have to spend, right? So I'm like, well, tell me how many are coming. Let's try to figure out a reasonable amount of what those people will eat. If they're kids, they're going to eat less than adults, so we're going to cut that in half, right? Whatever, and, and I'm, and, but anyway, but my wife would always rather have more, and I get that. I get that. Um, and so um, here's the, you know, the situation is, the, the, the bride, or the bridegroom, actually, the, the, the husband was responsible for getting all the provisions for this big ceremony, for this big multiple-day ceremony of a wedding. Um, and so uh, there, there's, for, for people in this culture, this was coming in the culmination of the, the year-long betrothal. And so we know this from the story of, of um, Jesus' mom, Mary, and, and Joseph, that they were betrothed but had not yet... Um, you know, gotten married and consummated their marriage. And so uh, for them, this is a much more formal um, process than our process of engagement. This was a formal uh, commitment that in order to be broken, had to go through divorce proceedings. And it was a, it was a year of provision. And so a lot of times this involved the, the, uh, the man building a home or adding on to his family's home, preparing uh, to provide for his new wife. And it would all culminate with, okay, this is all done, this is ready, now we're going to have this ceremony. But it was also up to that groom to provide all the provisions for this uh, meal and for this day and for the party and all of this. So it's a little bit different than our day, right? In our day, it was, it, it's the bride's party that, or the bride's family that pays for most of the festivities and the guys just get off with you know the rehearsal dinner or whatever. I have three daughters, so I'm acutely aware of this, and my blood pressure goes up a little bit when I think about it because uh, I know that that is coming. I had a good friend of mine when we got pregnant with our second daughter. He goes, you, he goes, I'm serious here. You need to start saving for prom dresses and weddings. And then I had another one, and I was like, I don't even know, man. We're just, it's gonna. The Lord gave them to me. I'm just gonna trust He'll provide and figure that out. Um, so, but, but here, it's the, the groom's responsibility. And in this culture, it's not okay to just say, well, I counted and, you know, I bought for everybody, so sorry, we're out. No, this would have been hugely shameful. Hu- like, humiliatingly shameful to have run out. And, and so much so that it's not just an embarrassing moment that would pass, but actually would have... Um, laid an indictment on his character of, of being able to provide for his family. And even some commentators and scholars would, would um, note from historical context that it actually could open that, that, that family up to some form of lawsuit from the bride's family and others for, for not having held up their end of the deal to, to, to throw this party. So, so there is some increased pressure that perhaps we don't feel because of our cultural disconnect here. But this is what, this is, what is, is, is actually building here, is that, oh, this is a huge social faux pas. This is, oh, they're out of wine. And this is what Mary brings to Jesus. This is the news that Mary brings to Jesus. And, and she just says they, they have no wine. Now, Here's where it gets interesting, and I heard some of you chuckle. I was backstage. I heard some of you chuckle at um, Jesus' response to his mama because it's awkward, isn't it? It's, it's a little hard to read. You're like, whoa, whoa. Jesus said to her, woman? Like, how many of y'all don't talk to your mama that way? You're like, uh-uh, <laughs> woman, right? Like, okay, you're 30 years old or not. You don't talk to your mama that way, right? And then, you, and then, and then we get, like, we, this, this story, the reason I don't think it gets, like, fully understood a lot, because people just don't know what to do with it. There's a lot going on in this story. People don't know what to do with it, because it's like, wait, Jesus never sinned, and it says, like, one of the commandments, you got to honor your father and mother, and so it doesn't seem like he's really honoring his mama here, so I'm just going to, I don't know. Like, there's some Greek, like, I'm sure it's a translation error, and honestly, they don't, like, Scott, this freaks everybody out. Every commentator has a different, like, way to, like, explain this and try to, some will soften it, and some will just say, no, he is rebuking his mom. Like, there's a lot going on here, but Jesus says, woman, um, 
What's this, what's this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I think, as confusing as this is, it actually holds the key to understanding the rest of the text. Because for, for years, here's what I thought when I read this. Uh, I thought that this was the begrudging, like, unplanned, but like, all right, if, I, if you insist, you put me on the spot kind of launch to Jesus' ministry. This is what it felt like, isn't it? It's like, Jesus here, he's just trying to enjoy the party. Right? He wasn't the guest speaker. He wasn't doing anything there. And now Mary comes and makes it his business, and he's like, ah, I'm not really ready to launch yet, Mom. We talked about this. I got a plan. Right? Building a whole campaign deal. I'm going to announce my candidacy as Messiah in a few days. Mom, you're... But then she's like, puts him on the spot and goes, hey, whatever he tells you, you got to do it. And then she walks away. And so Jesus is like, geez, all right, I guess I got to. And, that, and like, that's how I, like, honestly, how I viewed this, this, this passage for so long is this is kind of like, like when, you know, your kids are just begging you, begging you, and you're like, no, 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 okay, if you insist. And you just kind of like, all right, here's, here's, the, here's the miracle. Like, and honestly, what a shallow view, right? What a shallow view of what's going on here. Like, really, after all the intentionality that John has put into the prologue in chapter 1, to talk about from the foundations of the universe, that Jesus is the Logos, that Jesus is the thing holding it all together, that, that when the fullness of time had come, he puts on flesh and steps into the, the world, that Jesus knows when these events are about to come, that Jesus... <clears throat> No, we have the benefit of being on the other side. We know that, that as he gets to the end of his life, we know that he knows what is about to come to him. He knows that they're about to come and arrest him and that that will end with him on the cross and that, that will end with him in the grave and then that will ultimately start a whole new story when he gets back up out of the grave. He knows all of this is coming. And so for, him to, for us to think, okay, he's just trying to enjoy a wedding and his mom forces this premature launch on him is, is really shallow. And I think we, we do have to look at Jesus' reply here because it is, it is a bit of a, like, regardless of how you parse out the language, it is a startling kind of uh, choice of words from Jesus. For him to say woman is not the way that a son would usually talk to a mom. Um, it, but, and, and so some commentators want to run to Jesus at the cross and, and talk about the, you know, the sincerity of, of how Jesus is talking to uh, mom then, and, and, and he says, woman, behold your son. He's talking to John. He says, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gone now, right? Mom, this is your new provider. John, John, this is, this is your mom. You're going to take care of her like she's your own, that sort of thing, and, and, and try to soften it a bit. And I think there's some, you know, there's some validity to that, to that but others will want to say, well, you know, it, it's Jesus is, is rebuking her. Jesus is saying, hey, you've got an agenda. You're worried about this party not ending in embarrassment. I've got bigger plans, mom. Like I'm no longer just Jesus, son of Mary. I am the son of man, and I have bigger plans. And, and, he's, and he's distancing her, himself from her saying, listen, don't, don't, don't bring your, your, your small-minded issues to me. I, I, I'm now launched into my messiahship and this is not on my to-do list. Well, again, it has to be interpreted by Jesus's, by, by even, Jesus's response to her has to be interpreted somewhat by her response to him, doesn't it? Because if it's a, just a full rebuke of like, mom, that's not my, like, what has it got to do with me? Don't you know it's time for me to die for the sins of the world? I'm not really worried about this wedding. If it's that, then does she, does she leave and go, hey, whatever he says, just do it? Because that's what she does, which is a baller move from her. Like, right? I love that Mary's just like, all right, Jesus has got this. Y'all just do whatever. We don't know. We don't know what her expectations were. I, I, it's, it's really hard to think that she thought this would come, right? Now, there's, 
we, we don't have any evidence of Jesus doing any crazy, you know, miraculous things as a kid. There's some apocryphal, like, myths about him turning clay pigeons into real pigeons. We don't have any reason to believe that that's true. Like, this is his first miracle. This is his first sign. Now, to be clear, she's got some words from an angel a few years ago, right, about who this son would be, right, about who Jesus would be. She's got this whole deal of, like, she birthed him without having been intimate with a man. So, like, she's got some, like, idea of what, you know, this, this Jesus, this son of hers might be capable of. But to think that she's got in view him turning the ceremonial waters into wine, I, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. But nonetheless, it doesn't feel like a firm rebuke and, and a full distancing from Jesus because of her response. She's coming to him. We, we, we could presume a couple things. She's coming to him as her primary provider now. We don't have any mention of Joseph. We haven't seen Joseph since the story of, of, of Jesus being 12 and them coming back from the temple. And, um, and they're like, oh, snap, we left Jesus. And Jesus is back hanging out with uh, any of y'all left. Anyway, we won't get into those stories. It's, it's, it, but they get all the way back home. and like, well, who's got Jesus? I thought you had him. No, nope, we don't. Have, and okay, we, he's all the way back. And he's hanging out with the people in the temple. And, and it's, he says, i, I got to be about my father's business. We don't have any real... Um, confirmation that Joseph's around since that story. So the, the, the common presumption is that jo- Joseph has probably passed away. Jesus is no longer Jesus the, uh, the carpenter's son, but Jesus the carpenter. He's probably uh, been the primary provider because in that culture, when the, when the husband passes away, it's the firstborn son that, is, that takes on responsibility to care for mom and for the family. And so it, it's, it's probably been uh, true for a few years that Jesus has been Mary's primary resource and provider, the person that she would come to when uh, she had issues. So that's probably um, part of what's at play here is she's just simply bringing it to him. But she also trusts in his, you know, his sincerity, his resourcefulness, his wisdom, and, and that he would care. And so she brings it to him, and he, and he has this peculiar um, response. But this peculiar response sh- shouldn't actually leave us confused. It should leave us looking deeper. It should leave us looking beyond. And Tim Keller was super helpful for me as I, as I spent time studying this passage. And, and, and I think when he says, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There's, there's, there's a few things there. One is the, the idea of my hour is actually a specific event, moment, and thing that is going to be developed throughout the story. When he says my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the hour of his death. He's talking about the moment in which salvation will be purchased by his death. And so he's saying, that isn't here yet, but nonetheless, he's about to do this miracle. Okay, And when he says, what does this have to do with me? Okay, Yeah, I think he, he is, Jesus is great at, at, at taking something that people are seeing that's right in front of their eyes and rolling it up to a greater picture, rolling it up to far more that's happening in a, um, you know, like in a, in a sense of, uh, here's what's going on cosmologically, right? Like, you, you're just seeing this, but actually this. I, I, I want to submit that Jesus says this with a bit of a smirk, of like, ma'am, like, that, that's actually probably the closest translation for us from this woman, is, is this idea of ma'am. It's, it's a bit formal. Why are you bringing this to me? What, what, do you, what do you think this has to do with me? Jesus knows that he's about to make it have everything to do with him. He's about to roll this seeming social embarrassment issue into a huge parable, like a lived-out parable, a sign, a, a, a thing that points us further, gives us a picture of what he's about to, to do for us, right? So, yes, his hour has not yet come. What does he mean there? Like, well, Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom. The whole relationship between God and his people is portrayed throughout the Old Testament as marriage covenant. God as the husband, caring for, pursuing, purchasing, and and covenanting with his people as his bride. 
It's prophesied. It's looked ahead that there will be a feast that is coming, that this will all end with this incredible feast, that this will end with, uh, I mean, Derek talked, talked about that. We look, we look back, but we also look ahead. Jesus is looking ahead saying, this is what will be coming. Jesus knows that the prophets have been saying there will be a day that comes when wine will flow and it will be rich wine and it will flow from the mountains and the people of God will rejoice at what God has done. Jesus is seeing all of this he's been a part of that history past. He's been a part of what is brewing there. And and I think that he is about to say, yeah, I'm about to show. I'm about to blow up the paradigm of understanding of what the Messiah is going to be. And it's far better. It is far richer than anyone could have ever imagined. I think Jesus has, in some sense, his own wedding in view in this moment. And that makes some sense. You've been to a wedding when you're single. What are you thinking about? Yours. If, when, who, all of those things, right? Jesus says, what what does that have to do with me? He's saying, it's not my turn yet. This is not like poor Jesus like, don't feel that. Don't feel like, oh, yeah, Jesus never got to get married. He's, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is feeling. This is not like, oh, poor little Jesus, he never got to have himself a wife. No, no, he knows he has a bride. And he knows that he will have a wedding feast to provide for, doesn't he? And he'll be responsible for providing the wine. Do you think that Jesus was in a bit of a deep thought, perhaps, about what it was going to cost him to provide the wine, the wine that you just partook of, the wine of the new covenant? Jesus has that in mind. Jesus' heart is, is, is... perhaps running away from him, ahead of him. I don't think this was an accidental like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll kick it off. I think this was, I mean, all, the rest of our Bible would say God had all of this planned out intentionally. We don't, get to, we don't even get the names of this couple that's at this wedding. We don't even know whose wedding this is. But from eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit planned to do this miracle on this day. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I've got a wedding coming. And I'll be the provision. I'll be the one that will be fully responsible to provide the wine. Because, man, they're just not able. There's no way. But my provision will be far greater than anything they've ever known. Right? So in this parable, here's what we actually get. Not a parable, in the story. We're getting a parable about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what he offers us. And it's a straightforward story that gets spun out into other things, but man, it is so richly profound because we see that who he is is he's actually the bridegroom. He is the greatest groom. He is the one who is purchasing for himself a people. If you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps I'm I'm losing you a bit here, but the Bible postures uh, us as God's children, as the, the, the love of God's life. He loves us richly and dearly, and we have walked away from him, and he is coming. He, all throughout the story of the Bible, is him pursuing his bride, his people. And this is, a, this is a, a story with a lot of plot because his bride doesn't really want to be pursued at times. And she's spit in his face and walked away from him and been unfaithful. And that's true of you and me. We've disregarded the blessings that God has given us. We've disregarded the law that God has given us to live by. We are sinners. We uh, don't even give him a second thought. We're not seeking him. We're not running after him. We're not mostly good people. No, we're, we're far beyond. And, and yet, he is the lover who is coming for his bride. So Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. He's looking ahead. There will be that moment whenever he provides. And so we see that he is the bridegroom. And we see that what he's coming to do is to actually give himself as the provision. In the Old Testament, wine is given as a symbol of blessing and abundance. You don't get to drink wine when things are scarce. You don't get to drink wine whenever the crops haven't produced. So to have wine is, is, is celebratory. It's rich. It's awesome. It, it's, it's, yeah. And so Jesus has in mind, I think, Isaiah 25 and Joel and Amos and so many of the prophets that, that, that say this is what's coming. Isaiah 25 says this, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast or a rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well refined. It goes on to say, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all their faces and it will be said on this day, behold, this is our God. We, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9, all talk about the richness of the, the feast that is coming, the wine that, that God intends to provide for his people, uh, the, the, the ceremonial um, overflow of blessing that is God's kingdom is represented here in this story, this first of his signs, his miracles. A sign is to point us beyond itself to, to something greater, and that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. So Mary walks away, says, verse 5, do whatever he tells you to the servants, right? So now there's this scene. What's he going to say? Mary, put, Mary does put him on the spot. I don't know what to do with that, but she does. I, again, I don't know what her expectations were, but she puts him on the spot. And, and here in this scene, there's six stone water jars, they're there for the Jewish rites of purification, it says, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these big stone water jars, there's a, there's, there's a lot of parallels, a lot of culmination from the Old Testament in there. They're, they're stone, they're not clay. Clay could crack, it lose its, its, its cleanliness, its purity. Stone could not. It's there for purification ceremony. The more people you got, the more you got to have. They would pour this over their hands before they would um, you know, enjoy the, the meal, the feast. And so it's there as a ceremonial cleansing ritual. Not actually all that effective, right? Because some of you are like, well, did they have soap? Like what, that water's just sitting there and that's not super clean. Some of you guys, some of you German folks are like, I don't know, that doesn't sound real clean, right? It's, it, it is ritualistic primarily. It is, a, it is an act of, of, of showing uh, yourself to, to have gone through this, this, this ceremonial purification. But that's what's sitting there. And Jesus looks at the, tells the servants, verse seven, fill them with water. All those jars, right? So we get like 120 gallons or more. Um, and they filled them to the brim. Okay, so that, that's, that was his response. Verse 8. And he said to them, Now, go take some to the master of the feast. Draw some out. So they, take, they took it. And when the master of the feast, right, the head chef, the person who's kind of in charge of the, of the, the, the you know, the, the, the party side of the ceremony, right, <clears throat> takes it to them. And clearly that guy's been notified, like, hey, we're running really low on wine. Maybe he knows they're, all, they're out all together. So they bring it to him, and he tastes it, verse 9, and it's water that's been changed into wine. He doesn't know that, though. The servants know. I don't know what that's like. I, like, I, like, just notice the subtlety here of Jesus. Like, if I was about to do this, I'd be like the magician. and be like, all right, I want to get somebody from the crowd to come up here and drink this. It's just water, right? Right? Like, I want to make sure everybody knew that what I was about to do is real. Right? Like, no tricks. We didn't sneak 120 gallons of wine in just so we could set up this whole deal. Right? It's not illusion. It's not slide. But that would have been me. I want to make sure you all know what I'm about to do. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's quiet. Go fill it up. Go take it to the message ceremony. So they don't even know. Like, they're snickering. I don't know if they've tasted it. They could see that it's not, not water anymore. But there's all this tension here. And Jesus doesn't even draw this unnecessary attention to himself. It's a quiet, like, he's so calm and calculated about the, this, this incredible miracle that gets launched right here. But the subtlety here is, is striking to me. So 
And, and John makes a note to say, like, there was no announcement to say, we're out of wine. Mary told Jesus to do something about it. Let's see if he showed up. No, it's, it's just quiet. Hey, take it to him. The servants know. He doesn't know. And when he tastes it, he immediately calls the bridegroom over. I don't know if this is a stopping of the whole ceremony, an announcement to, to everybody, right? Or if it's just to the bridegroom. But, but nonetheless, he, he says, listen, you got to think this is somebody who does this a lot, right? Responsible for this a lot. And he goes, everybody, everybody, without fail, the social expectation is you serve the good wine first. And then... And this is where you can't say it's grape juice. So those of you with Baptist backgrounds are just going to have to wrestle with this. Because if it was, this next line wouldn't be in here, right? Because here's what everybody else does. Give the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, right? Why? Because, well, they don't care as much anymore, right? They've, they've, they're, they're no longer real interested in the, in the you know, the, the, the subtleties of the, the wine's palate and all of those things, right? It's, the party's gone a little further. So, so this, is, this is what's being laid out here, right? Um, but you have kept the good wine until now. What? And, and, and he's like blown away by this. Like nobody does this. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, first of all, you, like, I'm joking about the alcohol thing, but I actually know that that's a super sensitive issue for many of you. I grew up with that. Like, like, I grew up being taught that alcohol was was a sin, and that, and 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 hearing uh, the grape juice sort of things, and as a kid, and then starting to read my own Bible and seeing how things didn't add up. But but I know that there's a sincerity to this fear because there are people that. Here's the deal: whenever we start making laws that are that are further, when we start making our own laws and laying them on other people, usually that start. It's called legalism, and it usually starts out of a out of a well-intentioned, like we don't want to see the damage that has been done be done anymore. So this has been misused, so we want to get away from it and make sure we don't see it misused again. And, that, and that's usually how legalism starts. And so I know that there is some uh, legit sensitivity from many people that have seen your lives, your family's lives, or generations of your family's lives destroyed by alcohol. And so I, I want to be sensitive to that and understand that that is true. And that, that's, that's part of why my family is super sensitive to it as well. But I was, I was taught that you can't drink. I was taught, uh, frankly, that you can't dance, right? And so Jesus is blowing up all, I, I think they're dancing here. It just, it's just, it's in the fine print. Um, but I think they're dancing here, and, and they're partying well, right? And, and this is what we see, is that Jesus is not unnaturally religious, is he? Because one of the things you see all throughout these stories is that Jesus is in these social settings, why? He was invited into these social settings. A lot of y'all don't get these invites because you're not fun. Jesus was fun. <laughs> and he's not unnaturally religious in the sense of like, I got to pull away. I, 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 don't want, I don't want anybody to think the wrong thing. No, he is able to comfortably walk in and enjoy the good gifts that God has given us without fear of of being tainted by them or being pulled down by them or worried about what people think of them. He knows exactly what wine's purpose is. It's a good gift from God for the enjoyment of his people. He's also really aware of the damage that it can cause when it's been abused. And yet he walks in and he's able to enjoy this party and many other social settings, right? He is not afraid of the good in life. And if you think about it, Jesus, like the Bible is actually full of parties. Even in the Old Testament, God commands and instructs them to throw parties regularly. Festivals, feasts, celebrations, they're all his idea. So God comes into the world. He takes on flesh. He sets out to live the perfect life on our behalf. And guess what? He's at these social events. He's enjoying life. People want him there. He's able to sit in them with us but he's also able to sit in the hard things of life. This is the creator, the logos, coming into our space, and he's able to sit in these social, these very material settings and enjoy the good and also weep at the bad. 
And so often our idea of Christianity is, is this thing where we're really we're, we're told like, hey, are you ready to live like a really vanilla and boring life? You can come be a part of our church now. Right? And so sometimes that's what we put forward is like, hey, do you want to like keep your nose clean and like be a good person now? Okay, cool, you can be a Christian. But this is part of what Jesus is going to blow up this paradigm of that this is not actually what he's about. Some of you have been considering Christianity and you have the wrong idea of what you've even been invited to consider. Right? So often we just have this idea of pretending that everything is fine, right? We stay away from anything that might look like fun, right? We, we, we try like heck to make sure that nobody sees us struggling, right? This is what we do. We, 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 don't, wanna, we don't have too much fun. We don't want to get too close to things. We don't want to, like, we don't want to celebrate things like, you know, marriage intimacy and and, you know, the good gift of sex that God has given us. And, and, and those, we don't even want to do PDA. We don't want people to think we're too whatever, right? We don't want to go to parties. We don't want to enjoy a drink because we don't want people to think this or that. And, and, and then at the same time, we want to be really, really sure that nobody sees us struggling because that wouldn't be okay either. And what we see is that when the Messiah enters into the world, he's okay with both of those things. He's okay with enjoying the good gifts that God has given us and also with weeping and just saying this is hard. And even saying, I'm struggling. Like Jesus sits with his father saying, I am burdened. I don't want to do this. So this is important for us to sit in with this, right? Jesus, like to let the Bible define what God is calling us to. So we do need to check our posture toward God's good gifts. And let me just say quickly, um, yes, the Bible speaks of wine and, and alcohol as a gift from God. But it is also really clear that the greatest enjoyment of our life is giving ourselves away for the sake of others. So let me just say quickly that if if drinking is a stumbling block for somebody, what that means for us as Christians is not a, oh, man, I don't get to enjoy this liberty. What it means for us as Christians is, okay, cool, no drinks, right? Praise God we have a relationship with somebody who God is rescuing from the substance of, uh, or from the slavery of substance abuse, right? That doesn't rob us. It fills us. It lifts us up, right? We, uh, it, like, that is our posture as Christians. We don't get to call things bad that God has called good. That's really dangerous territory. So you need to let this sit on you if you're not comfortable. Some of you would have left the party when Jesus turned water into wine. Some of your parents would have pulled you out of the party. I was telling somebody the other day, my mom walking me out of a theater a movie. Uh, there was some foul language. We probably needed to leave, but I was humiliated as a kid. I was like, oh, mom. Some of y'all would have did that. You're like, we ain't following this Jesus anymore. We don't drink. We're God's people. I had a neighbor come over and, and tell us that, like, you know, like, well, we're, we don't drink. We're Christians. I didn't hear it, or I wouldn't, would, I would have went and got her a drink to offer it to her. But my wife is kinder than me, so she was just like, oh, okay, that's sweet. I was like, what? She said what? Like, because here's, that's the deal. It's like, yes, if someone's going to stumble because of our, of our drinking of alcohol, by all means, we get rid of the alcohol, and we rejoice that we have them. You got a brother, a family member, a community group member that's an addict that's struggling? You get rid of the alcohol, and you... You friggin' rejoice because you've got them. Jesus is saving them. You're not losing out. But at the same time, somebody comes and says, well, you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol. We'll make a stop by the liquor store because you absolutely are distorting the gospel. And I'm not just trying to be funny. I want you to see what Jesus is saying. I want you to see who Jesus is. And I want you to let his weight sit on you. Because here's what he's saying. We got all these ways that our world says, here's how you become a good person. We got all these ways that we say, here's our rights of purification. We don't have water jars. None of y'all washed your hands in water jars coming in here. But we got our own ways, don't we? Dress like this. Make this much money. Don't let people see when you're struggling. Don't do this. Don't say those words. Don't watch those movies. And then you can have this, this, this you know, social salvation. People see you as a good person. Jesus comes in to say, listen, this is not what the kingdom of God is about. 
The prophets have been saying it's going to be a feast. It's going to be rich. The, the mountains are going to flow with wine. And he said, that's what I'm here to do. And he transforms the Jewish rites of purification into something that can only hold the wine of celebration of his kingdom. And in this, he's saying there is something so much better so much better. Remember, Jesus, John had said, I, I'm just baptizing with water, but there's one who's coming who's going to baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the difference. Yeah, you've been cleansed. You're doing the, the religious thing. This is so much better because what does wine have? Wine has some taste, doesn't it? Wine has some jolt to it. Anybody ever went and taken communion, didn't know you were getting wine instead of juice? You're like, woohoo, ah, right? It's got some, got some punch to it. It's got, some, it's got some flavor. It's got some grab to it. And then it makes its way in you, and it, it informs your mind, right? Like, this is what he's saying, like, about the, 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 the kingdom of God. You remember Psalm 34? Taste and what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and drink from the fountain. Come and buy milk. There's all of this sensory language around what Jesus is offering, and he is saying it is so much better. It's not just something that you go, okay, let me, let me pick this out, check this box. I'll be a good Christian. I'll be a Christian, and, and I'll get to heaven. No, Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm going to transform everything. These, these ways in which you have socially elevated yourself or put other people down are no longer helpful, are no longer going to be used, and I'm going to turn them into something that can only be used for my glory and a manifestation of who, are, who I am. He's saying, I'm transforming everything. Jesus is better. Jesus is richer. His kingdom, he's the bridegroom. He's come to give his own life. The blood that we now drink, the, the, the cup of the new covenant is his blood poured out, and guess what? It never runs out. He'll never be empty. The party will continue to flow. The kingdom of God will continue to be open to any who would come and drink from him. And what he's saying is, I'm not offering you some religious rules to try harder, do better, and maybe you'll be better this time. I'm offering you new life. The old has come. The new is here, Jesus says. This is not the, like, this is not the first time that God has worked in history. There's all kinds of stories about God working through. Derek mentioned Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, King David. There was some, there's some peaks. There's some awesome moments in the history of, of Israel. So Jesus showing up is not this, well, nothing else has worked. Let me try Jesus. My people haven't listened to any other prophets. Let me try this one. No, no. God has been saving the best for last. His kingdom is one that is far better than even the best that we could have imagined. I mean, Jesus has them take the, the, the water now turned into wine to the master of ceremonies, and his mind is honestly blown, so much so that he stops the party, says to the bridegroom, nobody does this. Here's the deal, church. You need to invite your friends to Easter because nobody does this. Nobody does what our God does. Nobody does this. Nobody says, those of you who are sinners, whose life are a mess, who are completely out, get life. And not just life, but life to the fullest. Nobody saves the best for last. Nobody is so transformative that he could take your life, your mess, your story, and turn it into something that tells of his glory. Turn it into something that brings you joy. Turn it into something that causes you to rejoice, even in the broken parts of your, of your life. So Jesus is not a, a, a last-ditch effort. He's not a less-than kind of salvation. This is what God has intended to send. This is the kingdom of God. He's not giving us consolation salvation. He says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. This is not, this is not a, hey, just can you top me off, Jesus? Like, there's some significance to that detail. Like they filled it to the brim. This is not, it's some, that's how we come. 
I'm a pretty good person, but I'm going to go to church. Maybe Jesus can just top me off. No, no. The only way you get this is by confessing that you're out. You're straight up out. Social embarrassment, moral humility, all of it's there. The poor in spirit are the ones who get blessed and are rich. I'm out. I've got nothing, Jesus. And Jesus grins and goes, oh, no. But you're mine. And because you're mine, you have everything. I'm going to take what's yours. I'm going to take your nothingness. I'm going to take your filth. I'm going to take your sin. And I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you a transformed life, a life of hope, of forgiveness. Sins washed away white as snow with a future that ends with a wedding banquet that's going to be epic, eternally epic. We're going to see more of this develop as we go through the book of John, but for today, man, that's, that's our question. Have you even allowed yourself to believe that Jesus is the bridegroom, giving of himself to provide the wine from his own veins for the wedding that you didn't even know you, you wanted, certainly you didn't deserve, and yet he's made you his own. And the, the kingdom that he offers is one that is far richer, that is full of tasting and seeing that he is good. Some of you don't like your life. Some of you don't like the story of the, the, the wedding ceremony because your wedding's not great or you've never had your own. He's saying, you, you don't have to settle for that. You don't have to, that's not the end all be all. I am bringing a kingdom. Come and taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. Help us, Jesus, to taste and see that you are good. It's, it's beyond us to just go there in our minds, but may your spirit come and overwhelm us. And may we respond the way that the disciples did in just believing, man, Jesus is, Jesus is amazing. May we respond the way that you said your people would in Isaiah 25, and it says, we're just going to rejoice and be glad in the salvation that Jesus has brought. May you compel us as a people to go and tell our friends this week, you got to come here about my Jesus. Nobody does what he does. Nobody takes broken marriages, addicts, busted up lives and turns them into causes for celebration, laughable stories of testimony of your power, Jesus. We want to see more. We want to be overwhelmed. We want to see you high and lifted up here in Southern Illinois and beyond. Come stir, Holy Spirit. Put us in awe of Jesus. Set the captives free. Heal the brokenhearted. Bring the new wine of your kingdom to bear here in our hearts, in this place. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.